Take your Bible, please, or a pew Bible, and turn with me to John 15. John 15. Pray with me, please. Our Father, guard our thoughts, we pray. Give to us to think your thoughts after you. Deliver us from being seated here and thinking about what took place last week, no matter how good or bad it was, or things of the week to come, no matter how joyful we hope they might be. Bless our time together. May the Spirit of God be our teacher through the Word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Even a casual reading of John 15 reminds us that this chapter is built around several important, key, crucial, whatever word you want to use, relationships. John 15 is built around key relationships. Look with me, uh, just kind of an overview for a moment at John 15. First in importance and first in order in this chapter is the believer's relationship to Christ. The believer's relationship to Christ. First 11 verses. We're going to begin this this morning, just a few moments. But the key word there in those first 11 verses, the key word is abide. Now, if I have counted correctly, and I've done it more than once, but I can still make a mistake, I'll assure you of that. But if I have counted correctly, 10 times in these first 11 verses, the word abide is used. Do we get the point? What's supposed to be my relationship? What's supposed to be your relationship with the Lord? Abiding. Second part of this chapter addresses another crucial relationship. The believer's relationship with other believers. When was the last time you thought the Bible told me how I'm supposed to relate to a fellow believer? Oh, you know, there's a word or two that comes to mind. But when was the last time you ever ever gave really serious thought to the fact the Bible addresses my relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ? That's in verses 12 through 17. Relationship with other believers, verses 12 through 17. You know this already. You have heard sermons preached on it. You've read it yourself. But the key word here is love. It occurs four times in verses 12 through 17. There's one other relationship that we struggle with. It is our relationship with the world. Verses 18 through 27 deal with this area. And there is a key word here, as you might guess from the first two. And that key word is the word hate. It occurs eight times in verses 18 through 27. And the reason it occurs there is because that's what we can expect from the world. May I say something to you that may be a, 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 a little edgy? If you find the world approving you on a regular basis, day in, day out, the world says nice things about you, you might need to look in the mirror and go to the Word of God. These verses say the world will hate us. Three key relationships. First of all, the believer's relationship to Christ. The key word is abide. Second, the believer's relationship with other believers. Key word, love. Third key relationship in John 15 has to do with the believer's relationship to the world. And the key word there is hate. 
I'd like to begin our study, and we'll continue this next week as well, at least next week and possibly the week beyond that, but not sure of that yet. I want to begin our study this morning by looking at the most important relationship that is set forth in verses 1 through 11. And my focus will be, though I will refer to a couple other verses in verses 1 through 11, my focus is going to be 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2. The section that... um, we are looking at is commonly referred to as the upper room discourse. Not, however, all of it is act, does actually take place in the upper room. And you say, Pastor, how do you know that? Well, because I've read the end of chapter 14. This is referred to as 14, chapters 14 through 17. It's all referred to as the upper room discourse. Uh, and that's handy for a title, something we can latch hold of. It's not anything particularly wrong with it. But we do need to think about that just a little bit. Verse 14, chapter 14, verse 31. 1431 says, But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, even so I give unto you. But would you notice the last phrase of verse 31 of chapter 14? Arise, let us go from here. They were in the upper room when Jesus said that. Arise, let us go from here. It seems at that point, the Lord and His disciples left the upper room, that room they had gathered, where they had gathered to celebrate Passover, and began to walk across the city of Jerusalem, down into the Kedron Valley, and then to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. So, if you want to be a little more technical about it, um, chapters 13 and 14 are in the upper room. Chapters 15 and 16 are somewhere as the group moved across the city, chapters 15, 16, and chapter 17 takes place in the garden. All right? Now, that having been said, one other note before I get to reading the verses. There are many guesses, and that's all they are, yours, mine, and expositors included. There are many guesses as to why the Lord may have been pleased to use this particular figure of the vine and the branches. Some have suggested the Passover ceremony in the upper room. Obviously, the fruit of the vine was a part of that ceremony. Maybe as they were thinking about that, Jesus was thinking about that, and so he just continued and said, I am the vine, you're the branches. That's quite possible. Others have suggested maybe they walked as they made their journey across the city, Maybe they walked past some uh, grapevines and just saw them growing. That, too, could have been the case. Others have suggested that, well, more than likely, they, as they made their journey across the city, they saw the gates of the city. And sculptured on the gates was the symbol of Israel, the grapevine. Just as the eagle is the symbol of our country, the grapevine, the symbol for Israel. That in mind, 15.1, follow along please. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear much more fruit bulk of my comments are going to be made right in here. As I said, we will, Lord willing, 
continue next week. We need to allow the Scripture to make some identifications for us to begin with and to be certain that we hold on to those designations. And the reason I suggest before I even start at at this, uh, the second one is the one where there's a whole lot of discussion. But we'll get to that in just a moment. Who are these people? Well, first of all, we begin in verse 1. Who's the vine? Well, preacher, everybody knows who the vine is. I am, Jesus is speaking, I am the true vine. Well, what do we make of the word true here? Well, sometimes in the New Testament and sometimes when we use it, the word true distinguishes from that which is false. I don't believe that's the use here. I believe when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he is saying that he is the perfect vine. He is the enduring vine. He is the one before whom all other vines are but shadows. As I mentioned a moment ago, the vine was a symbol of the nation Israel. The disciples were familiar with that. All of Israel was familiar with that. They would have known that, but... Maybe we have not reviewed in in some time. So keep your place, if you will, here at John 15. And look back at two passages in the Old Testament with me, please. First of all, Psalm 80. Psalm 80, verses 89. What I'm suggesting is really quite plain and, and obvious. The disciples would have known what he's referring to when he spoke about the vine. Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9. That it's remove a vine from Egypt, that it's drive out the nations and it's plant it. God moved a vine and made room to plant it. Verse 9 says that it's cleared the ground before it and, took, and it took deep root and filled the land. But would you notice, and let me just point this out here, drop down to... Verse 12 of Psalm 80. Thou hast broken down its hedges, and so all that pass that way pick its fruit. A boar from the forest eats it away, and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. I'll explain that in just a moment. If you will turn over with me, please, to the book of Jeremiah, the second chapter. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21. 2.21, book of Jeremiah. There we read, Yet I have planted you a choice vine, a completely fruitful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into a degenerate, into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? Interesting to me is that the vine is symbolism, it's truth, it comes out of the Old Testament. But did you notice the accompanying statements of Israel's degeneration? Even from the time it speaks about God removing them from Egypt, God planting them, God taking care of them, uh, there is a, a statement in both of these passages with respect to the degeneration of that vine. As a vine, Israel 
became barren. God had planted it to bear fruit, but it wasn't. So here's another contrast between the vine that he had planted, the nation Israel, and himself. Second identification, verse 1, says, My father is the vine dresser. Well, that answers the question for us, doesn't it? Vine dresser. It's interesting, though. The word vine dresser um, in the original text is compound word. Made up of two words. Made up of the word for earth and made up of the word for worker. Literally, my father is the earth worker. He's pictured as the one who tills the ground. As the one who takes care of the vine that he had planted. Now, a third identification that we need to make. And perhaps, if it's possible... Would you just allow me to say, in some senses, this third identification is the most crucial one. Because on this identification rests the rest of the 11 verses. Who are the branches? Did you notice in the the words in verse 2? Every branch where? In me. Where were the branches that are being talked about in John 15? They were in him. Nail that down in your mind and in your thinking. Some, and the reason I say this is crucial, there are those who want to question who the branches are. The text of Scripture seems very clear. The branches are individual believers. Now, if you just read it, that's what you're going to come up with. You've got to do, I believe, some gymnastics to come up with something different. But there are a number of expositors who do. There are a number of people who do. Some ignore the phrase in verse 2, in me. Why do they want to do that? Because there is the mention of the branch that isn't bearing fruit. And we are told this branch is not a genuine believer, but simply a professing believer, not a genuine one. And then they immediately moved to talk about Judas Iscariot. And then from talking about this believer, whom they conveniently forget, it says, in Christ. When they do that, uh, then they will talk about Judas. And from Judas, they usually drop down to verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire. So the picture that is drawn by a lot of folks is... Uh, They just ignore the two words in me in verse 2, and then they do their gymnastics, and they jump down from this believer who's not bearing fruit, is not, well, he's only a professing believer. He's not a real believer. And then they'll talk about Judas Iscariot. That's extraneous from the text. It's not there. And then they drop down to verse verse 6, and they get eternal punishment out of verse 6. Now, that's a neat package. Verse 2, you can bring in Judas, and then you can go down to the verse, the sixth verse, and you have a very neat little package, and you can tie it up in a little bow. The only problem with it is they've ignored the two words in verse 2. Where is the branch? Branches are Christian people. Are we to be told from this passage of Scripture 
that a person can be a Christian and lose his or her salvation? Are we to be told from this passage of Scripture that this is not a believer at all? Folks, you know, in Bible study, we simply need to let the Bible say what it says. Just let it say what it says. And it says every branch where? In me. There's no way that I can understand any kind of mental gymnastics to where you can make this out a professing believer who goes to hell. But some do just that. But that doesn't relieve us of something painful in verse 2. Would you look at it again, please? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Branches, believers in Christ that do not bear fruit. But please keep in mind, even unfruitful, listen to me, even unfruitful branches are true branches. Even unfruitful branches are true branches. Every branch in me is what Jesus says. Again, let's not lose sight of their position. This brings us to a second major area of emphasis in verse 2. The vine dresser. The vine dresser is interested in the branches bearing fruit. Look at verse 2 once again. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. We'll talk about that, what that means in a moment. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. Why? That it might bear more fruit. The vine dresser is interested in the production of fruit, else he wouldn't have planted a vineyard. And in order to bring the branches to a place of bearing fruit, he does two things. Back to verse 2. He takes away every branch in me that does not bear fruit. He takes away. What in the world does that mean? If it doesn't mean that they lose their salvation, what does it mean? He takes away. Well, I spent time looking up this particular word in four different Greek lexicons. Okay? All of them say the primary meaning of this word is to raise up or to lift up. To raise up or to lift up. The emphasis in verse 2 is upon the care of the vine by the Father. And this lifting up is precisely what is done with literal grapevines. You know... um, Grapes are not like squash. Grapes are not like uh, watermelons. You know, where do they grow? On the ground. Do the farmers, horticulturalists, do they lift those up? No. But grapes won't grow on the ground. This is true, as I understand it, and from what I have seen, Uh, some of you folks have grapevines in your backyard. When you find the branches on the ground, what do you do? You lift them up. You lift them up. Grapes must hang free. Consequently, any branch that trails along the ground will be unproductive. So the vine dresser lifts up the branch on an arbor, 
or with some other means, exposes them to the sun and to the air. That's what a vineyard looks like, isn't it? You've seen vineyards. First thing the vine dresser does is to lift up the branches that are trailing along the ground. Second thing we read in verse 2 about them is that he prunes the branches. This word means to cleanse. To prune in the original text means to cleanse. We get our word catharsis from this particular word. Okay? Cleansing. Cleansing the branches of anything harmful. What? Insects? Moss? Whatever would grow on them. Cleansed. I believe that more than likely, because, or since this is used of a vine and its branches, it probably means pruning in the normal sense of the word as well. Consider these two thoughts for a moment. Cleansing in the physical realm, that could be accomplished by water. And it's not really uncommon to see people with grapevines using a hose on them to cleanse them. That's in the physical realm. In the spiritual realm, verse 3 says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken unto you. So spiritually, this has to do with the word of God. You remember the Psalms, Psalm 119, wherewithal shall a young man, pardon me, it's the old King James, but if, I'm, if I quote a passage of Scripture in a sermon, most of the time it's from the old King James. And I want to tell you something, folks. I'm not sorry for it. Some people will say, well, you know, that's the blah, blah, that's old or whatever. You know, when the English departments at the major universities do away with the King James, then I'll think about it. But they don't. You're an English major? You read a lot of stuff from... King James Day. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereunto according to the word of God. Psalm 119. How are believe We can cleanse grapevines with water. How are we as believers cleansed? By taking heed thereunto according to the word of God. The word of God is our cleansing agent. I heard Dr. B. You've heard him on the radio. The word of God is the greatest bar of soaps ever been invented. Cleansing. But as I said, I believe also there is the thought of pruning that goes with this in the word catharsis. We have things in life, in mine, and in yours. They're harmful and need to be pruned, to be cut away. And oftentimes, that's painful. But friends, all of us have those kinds of things that hinder fruit bearing. And the problem is exacerbated by the fact that we love some of those things in our lives that hinder fruit bearing. We don't want to give them up. And so God has to prune them. I don't read a whole lot of C.S. Lewis, but what I read I enjoy. In one of his works, C.S. Lewis talks about a boy by the name of Eustace. Eustace finds himself one day in a dragon's cave. You read this? And not only does he find himself in a dragon's cave, but he looks 
And Eustace has turned into a dragon. Naturally, he attempts to peel off that dragon's skin, but he can't remove it by himself. Finally, the lion, the Christ figure, comes to him. And then, as Eustace puts it, he said, you will have to let me undress you. That is, take the skin off. Eustace goes on and says, I was afraid of his claws, but I can tell you I was pretty nearly desperate now. I just lay down flat on my back and let him do it. He goes on. The very first tear that he made was so deep, I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. And then he says this. The only thing that made made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Pruning is painful. But remember this. The hand of the vine dresser is never closer than when he's pruning. Why does he prune? Well, we've read it. Because he wants us to bear fruit, because he wants us to bear more fruit, because he wants us to bear much fruit. Cleansing and pruning are often necessary. You ready for this? God is interested in the branches bearing fruit. God is interested in you and me bearing fruit. And not just a funy a few puny sour grapes either. Ever known a Christian? Only fruit they bore was sour grapes. Ever been one? Nothing's ever good. Open the mouth, exit sour grapes. The vine dresser, our Heavenly Father, wants fruit. More fruit. And much fruit. Now that leads to a question. What, what is the fruit? Pastor, well, a good place to begin looking for fruit is Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit, the Apostle Paul says, is what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control. Child of God, personal question. When the Father looks at your life, listen to me. God knows the answer. You might as well be candid. When God looks at your life, God, your Heavenly Father, looks at your life, what does He see? An unfruitful life? A life filled with only sour grapes? Or does He see a beautiful Lovely, fragrant, pleasant fruit. When your heavenly Father looks at you, what does he see? Well, how do we have this fruit? How do we get it? The key to it is abiding. And Lord willing, 
I want to talk about abiding and what that is and what it means next Sunday morning. Pray with me. Lord, we confess we are masters at sour fruit. We cannot like more things than we can number, name. We can be upset about so many things. We can complain about this, that, and every other thing. Dear Lord, we ask as our Father, forgive us. May we be branches that are producing and exhibiting sweet, fragrant, Christ-like fruit. Help us, Lord, to be introspective enough to answer the questions honestly before you. It's so easy to sit in a worship service and pass this off to somebody else or to wonder, isn't he about through? May the Spirit of God work on my heart and on the hearts of every individual in this place and answer the question, when you look at us, what do you see? We ask this in Jesus' name for our good and for your glory. Amen. Number 390 in your hymnal. A sweet and wonderful prayer. May the mind of Christ my Savior be in me. Now, for just a moment, I know you're closing up and getting your things ready, and that's all right. <clears throat> just a question. Is there somebody in this room this morning who's never trusted Christ as Savior? And what I mean by that, very simply, is, is there somebody in this room this morning who, if they were to die today, you're not sure you'd go to heaven? Please don't say, well, this is church. That's what they're supposed to do. Answer the question. If you died today, do you know where you would spend eternity? We are not like animals. We have a future that we're going to spend somewhere. You can determine that today by putting your faith and trust in Jesus. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Three chapters later, the wages of sin is death. Back to chapter 5. God commended this love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know that while you were a sinner, Jesus died for you? If that doesn't make you say, wow, nothing will. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10, to believe and be saved. Have you ever done that? You're in this place this morning and you don't have a church home. I invite you to come and join with us. You need a place where people will love you. Where people will encourage you. I believe with all of my soul that Wake Chapel is that kind of place. If you don't have a home, we invite you to come join with us. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you're welcome here. I want to extend... The challenge that I did last week this, uh, at the close of service here this morning, and I'm going to do it again next week too. I want to challenge Wake Chapel Church to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Primarily, I believe that's done by 
your relationship with the Word of God. Don't take your Bible home today and lay it down and let it gather dust from now to next Sunday morning at 9.30. Read your Bible. In the worship folder last week, there was a program that would, could direct you if you'd use it on reading the Bible through in a year. I want to encourage you, and I want to challenge you to do that. Encourage you and to challenge you to do that. I frankly don't think there's much better that a pastor can do other than presenting the gospel than to encourage the people in the church to read their Bible. Listen to me. You know it. You watch some of the same news that I do. Lies are abroad everywhere about everything anymore, it seems to me anyway. I'm a pessimist, forgive me, okay? But I'm not a pessimist really because I believe Jesus is coming. And that makes me an eternal, forever optimist. But lies are everywhere. About the government, about the church, about people, whatever. Read the Word of God. It is the truth. It is the only truth known to man. It is God's Word. It is not a word that comes from the mind of man. It is God's Word. Read the Word of God. So I want to challenge you. Mark Massey is our deacon today. Mark comes to lead us in prayer. Ask the Lord's blessing on our congregation, on our missionaries, on Jennifer in particular, as we go. Go in grace. I did find a church just in driving around. It wasn't close here, but it's just in driving around. I did find a church that had the sign I have wanted for years. It faces the parking lot, and it simply had on it, you are entering the world. Remember that when you pull out this morning. Mark, pray for us, would you please? Sure. Pray with me, please. Abide. Father, you have um, abided with creation in the garden, abided with Israel through the cloud and the pillar of fire. You've abided with us with the gift of your word. You chose to abide with us as you came and walked among us and showed us. When you left us, you abided with us through your spirit. Let us be open to that, that we be fruitful and bear fruit for you. We lift up our mission today, the SIGs, Transworld Radio, that you'll tend to their needs as they service and prepare the world and enlighten the world of how you abide among us. We also lift up Jennifer as she travels to Jamaica with teams for medical mission that you'll abide with her and that you'll show those people that um, the talents that you've given her, that you abide in her, and that Christ abides in this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.